Hello and welcome to the Cross-Functional and Friendly Podcast. I'm here with my friends Kristen Habach and Nikita Miller to talk about all things tech and startups, leadership, marketing, product, sales, the whole shebang. The three of us um, met many years ago when we were building a tool you might have heard of called Trello. Kristen led sales, Nikita was a product leader, and I led marketing. Trello was acquired by Atlassian in 2017, and we've all continued on our tech career journeys but have remained close, as startup veterans tend to do. We're excited to share our stories and stories of other tech leaders in operational roles, highlighting how people work together in different orgs and how our careers have progressed while also living rich, meaningful lives outside of work. I'm Kristen, and today we're going to be talking about the magic and mystery that is product-led growth. But first, (laughs) we are joined by our very good friend and an early leader in all things PLG, former CEO and co-founder of Trello, and I believe Scarecrow in his high school production of Wizard of Oz, Michael Pryor. Michael, do you want to give us a quick overview of who you are? I feel like you just did it, I think. I think all of our bosses. Yeah. Yeah. All of our former right. boss. So, yeah. 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 All right. The, the man who's okay. Should... We can still say whatever we want now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Keyword is former. Yeah. yeah. As, as prep for this, I listened to your first episode. So, congratulations on getting that into the wild. So, thanks. Oh, thank you. All right. That was awesome. well, you were the one listener. Yeah, I, <laughs> really I think did our parents listen? My mom could not figure exactly. out how to do it. So, yeah. I haven't sent it yet. <laughs> I need to. A journey of a thousand steps. You know, you're... <laughs> so product-led growth is on lots of people's minds, whether they're at an early stage startup or multinational software company. There's also some debate about what it really means to be product-led. So let's start by defining terms. What does product-led growth mean to you? I'll start with you, Stella. Well, I think product-led growth, the way that I like to think about it is that it's more of a response to something else. So in the past, I feel like growth came from other areas, specifically sales or marketing or whatever. And in in a product-led growth model, you're really looking for like the revenue and everything to be driven by the product. And I'm sure we're going to get into what that actually means, but that is my 10-second definition. All right, Kristen, you're next. The way I think about product-led growth is that um, you're trying to enable the purchase as much as possible without interaction from external forces other than the product. So being able to discover and grow and expand through easy-to-use product access and easy-to-discover. Michael, what's yours? Now let's get the product people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the sales and marketing people. Just told you. It's how to get rid of us. Now what's your answer? I, I've heard this term a lot. I just have to confess, I don't know exactly what it means. I've never like read a book on it or, or so I guess one of the ways to figure it out from first principles is like, what is, what is not, what is an example of not product-led growth? Can you give me an example of something that's not product-led? So I think the common example would be you, instead of using a product right away, it's gated. You have to do a demo that someone else is doing. Gotcha. And then that's how it's purchased. That's that's how so I like, think it's en- the The old school enterprise software model yeah. type of thing. 
where they'd say pricing page would say call us or yeah like that i want to just call out that i i think it's pretty fascinating that michael pryor does not really know what this term means considering how many people these days use trello yeah as an example of product-led growth well i mean i think because maybe it's because that's, that's all i've done is that all i've done like is that how Fog Creek worked and now Stack yeah, I mean, maybe like so. The way that I, the way that I think about product-led growth is usually like is in the context of how easily and how quickly do users find value in your product, and equally important, how organic is it for users to share the value of that product with others so that your cost of acquiring users is low. Can you use? Can you do? Can is that like a strategy you can use in any? Like field, like if I was making oil and gas software, could I do product-led growth for that kind of market? Or does the market also determine whether you can? I think you can. I think there's probably flavors of it. Like I was talking to a company that makes trucking software the other day Mm -hmm. and the way that they were approaching it, I don't know if they described themselves as product-led, but to me it felt more like that where there was a lot of free features in the product in this like logistics management thing that usually a company would pay for and they monetize on something else like whatever it doesn't matter but I think the big difference in that vertical was the fact that there was a lot of free product in this specific software that wasn't there before (laughs) okay and how do you think maybe any of you how do you think that differs from a freemium model because freemium models of were all the rage for a while right like there was some moment in the early 2000s or even in the 2010s where everyone thought freemium model was the way to go. How is this different? I was going to say, you know, I think that freemium is a is a big component to, to PLG. Like, uh, you know, I think that it's not the one and only aspect to it because I think that it's still ultimately like, can you what's that upgrade process and what's that buying process once you get through the freemium journey? Cause you can still have something that's a slice of freemium and it's still like contact us to upgrade or like you can't easily discover it or you can't, you know, self-serve whatever it was, which like honestly to some extent was Trello enterprise. You couldn't buy Trello enterprise without talking to us. Right. So, you know, even though we're talking about it as a PLG motion, I mean, I, I think we ultimately weren't fully there. Unlike Atlassian, right? Which it, you could. There's no point in Atlassian where you can't buy it. So I think freemium is a big component to me, at least, of, of PLG. I think it gets trickier when you talk about free trial, like is a free trial PLG motion. And that one, it was where I see a lot of people trying to do a free trial and then be like, we're PLG. And, and I, that I disagree with. So the, you're making me think of a story I heard from a CEO of a, of a public software company. They weren't public at the time, but they are now. You're, sort of, you're making me think about friction, right? And the friction in the process. And it's like, do you want to have friction? Friction sounds bad, I guess, is sort of the thing. But also you can imagine that having a person talk to you on the phone could be useful and may make more people decide to buy your software in certain circumstances where the cost of having a human call another human actually made sense for the software. Obviously, if you're going to get 10 bucks a month for someone, it doesn't work like that. But he was telling me a story about they had a feature in their product that was kind of broken or you you had to call to get it turned on Mm -hmm. or something like that. And they were product-led growth type business. The support team was asking the CEO, they're like, why don't we just let people do this themselves? So the CEO said, when they call, actually, it's a great opportunity for us to have a conversation with them, talk to them about how the software's going. Like, otherwise, they wouldn't call us. And actually, we've 
in you know we it's almost like an excuse and it doesn't bother them to, for them for this particular reason to call us and so i thought that was interesting i'm not sure this is right but i'm going to say it anyway when i think about freemium i think about a limited amount of time that you have access to a feature set and when i think about product led growth it's like you can always have access to some portion of the product and then as you get more and more value then you can and you pay start paying that unlocks like a different feature set. What's your answer, Nikita? The freemium question. For me, it goes back a little bit to the like the core of how I think product-led growth works or maybe should work is that the more you use the product, the more value you find in it. And in some ways, the more reliant you become come to it, right? So, so it could be that, you know, the freemium model at some point, I would kind of remove the the 10 day or 30 day gate, 14 day or 30 day gate and say, hey, the product is working such that over time you get more value from it. And by the time you reach this moment of, of kind of being asked to pay, like you're kind of locked in, right? Because it's already kind of core to how you work. I think Slack is like the common example that people use, right? Which is, it started off with this motion of obviously you need it, you need it to communicate. By the time you get to everyone in your org using it, they use limits to begin with in terms of the number of messages saved or that you can access. But by that point, you were kind of locked in because you and your entire team were using the product and finding value in it. Yeah, It's interesting that the limit that they chose, though, doesn't actually stop you from continuing to use the product more and more. I, I guess you can only mm-hmm. add five apps to your instance, but, you know, right. but the 10,000 message history, like versus time limits, like, you know, you can only use yeah. it for a certain amount of time, then it gets shut off and you have to ask for an extension or number of user limits, like they don't have a user limit. So it's interesting because like one of the disadvantages, like when you charge per user for software, having a user limit means that the entrance fee for your software is always the same, right? It's always going to be some low limit. Like if you're if you limit it to 10 users, then you know people are going to start paying at the 10 user mark for 10 users, right? Kind of roughly. Whereas if you don't have a user limit, it's sort of interesting that you could have people getting to this point where they're using your software and if they decide to pay, they're going to have to pay you a ton of money, right? Mm-hmm. So like this huge cliff to get into the software. It's interesting, Slack kind of did this in like the way that they did their limits were compelling enough to get people to pay, but also soft enough to allow Mm -hmm. people to actually not have to pay for a very long period of time. And I think. But I think that's, that's one of the differences maybe in this, which makes it not a freemium model. As I just thought of Calendly, for instance, Calendly is similar. There is a free version that you'll use forever. And there's some pipeline of users that'll probably always use that just the free version. But there are these advanced features that that you can access, but they seem totally okay if some sec- some subsection, right, or subsegment yeah. are just going to be free forever, and that's okay. And that's the I think that's also a distinction is that 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 giant free user base that's sort of the customer acquisition cost in the strategy where instead of like trying to buy ads or you know scaling a paid strategy, it makes a lot more sense to build this pool of free users who. Maybe today they're going to fall into a paid 
uh, use case or, you know, job to be done. But it could be three years from now when they introduce Slack or Calendly at a different company or they switch roles. And that's sort of the cost of having them on the platform and maintaining that. That's the, the customer acquisition cost. Yeah. I mean, I think PLG to some extent is like you sacrifice the monetization for the immediate land grab. Right. And I remember the early days in Trello where we were like, let's get to a hundred million users. Like, who cares? Let's just get them. Like, let's get them in. We'll worry about monetizing them later. And it's like having been in motions that aren't like that, you know, it is a very, I would say the opposite, right? When it was like, how is this different from other strategies? It's like looking very carefully at each CAC, like what's your cost of acquisition? What's your channel that you're getting it from? What's your ROAS on your ad spend? Like what's your LTV on that customer? And to you- some extent you're, you get there with PLG, but it's a lot more just like gobble it up, like gobble up the market, make sure they don't go somebody, use somebody else. They don't use hip chat, they use Slack, just gobble them up. They don't use somebody else. They use Trello. They don't use whatever. And I think like to do that, you then have to give enough quality product that you can land grab and people will keep using you and not bounce you to somewhere else. Do you think that it's a strategy that you use for a specific phase of your growth or is it a decision that you make for your product? I mean, like- I guess I would turn it back around to you and kind of say like, when did you decide to bring sales and marketing in? Right. Cause like, I think it is to some extent a certain period of your growth, but you can also look at Atlassian and say like, I don't know, does that a growth that period ever end? So, so why did you bring sales and marketing in, Michael? There was a decision you made there where you guys already had like five million users and it was growing, and you were like, okay, <laughs> GTM people need to join us. Yeah, I think like I read this great article the other day about you know people talk about exponential growth but it's actually not exponential and that what what ha- what a lot of companies do is they'll they'll do like some kind of ca- marketing campaign and it'll peak and a bunch of people will come in but then it tops out at some point and what you have to do is layer on multiple marketing campaigns you have to layer on sales you have to layer on international you have to keep layering on because people think like oh there's some you know today 10% growth is you know 20,000 people and the next year, 10% growth is 50,000 people. It's like, it, it gets harder and harder as time goes on. So imagining that you come up with some formula for your software, whether that's the model that you choose for how you charge people or whatever, it's like, it's never finished. And I think that sales, marketing, international, like everything, you just had to keep going, right? Like every six months, it's like, you need to be thinking about what you're adding on as a layer because that's how you're going to grow the business. And that those strategies that you might choose in the beginning can be strategic depending on the market that's around you. So for example, in the early days when we were saying Trello is free and we gave a lot of value away, that was really great. And then people would come up to you and they'd be like, oh my God, you make Trello. That's so cool. I use it all the time. I can't believe you guys don't make me pay for it. And you know, at the, when you've heard that like a thousand times, you know, you start to say like, maybe we're, we've got the dial turned a little bit to giving away too much value because we're trying to build a business, you know? So like, it's, it's about dialing that in at the right moment. And then you can get into a stage where you're in a market where everyone else is spending, you know, 
hundreds of millions of dollars on marketing to your customers and you're in organic growth. You know, if that's all you're doing, you're just like, well, if somebody tells somebody else about it. It's like, that's not going to cut it. Like the, the, the market has changed. The game has changed. And so you have to respond to that. You can still be strategic about it. It doesn't mean that you have to spend a hundred million dollars, but you have to think about like how you're layering in things that are going to grow your user base or grow your revenue base. It could be even different. You don't necessarily have to be growing your user base depending on, 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 on which users you're acquiring because you could be getting more enterprise customers, right? And your revenue could be growing and growing because of that. In which case you're actually not necessarily growing, you know, total monthly active users in the same way that you would be if you were going out into the market and just trying to get people from Google ads or something like that. So I remember one time I was at an event with you, Michael, and you, I I forget where we were at, but anyways, you were like, someone's like, tell us about Trello. And you're like, the first thing you need to know about Trello is it's free forever. And I was like, (laughs) forever, forever. I I think, yeah. Don was like... (laughs) Don always jokes with me. He's like, how how much have you freaked out? I was like, in the, I was like, calm. The, the inside of me was screaming like, no, I can make you pay for it. It's okay. We've made a lot of mistakes over the years. But I think <laughs> I like one of them is kind of believing like or holding on to something for too long or holding on to like a strategy mm. or a belief for too long. So one of the things that I think back, let's like roll the clock way back here. Um you know, as an Atlassian employee now, there's like, like a, when we were, I ran a business that competed with Atlassian, not Trello. This was even before that. We made a bug tracker called Fog Bugs Fog way back bugs. in the day, okay, back in 2000. And at that time, Atlassian came out with a product called Jira, and they were selling site licenses for Jira, and they were relatively inexpensive, but, but, you know, I think it was like $5,000. And, the big banks like Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch, I forget which specific banks, but they were buying these and then developers were using them in-house. And, you know, these banks had, they could spend a million dollars on software, but it was, it was great for them because they got a really good product and it was $5,000. So they just like one of the managers would, wouldn't even need approval. So they would just put it on their card and buy it. In fact, multiple people at the company might buy a site license when they didn't actually need to. And, and when I saw that happening, you know, competing with the last I was like, oh, they're leaving all this money on the table. But what was actually happening was they were getting their foot in the door at these amazing companies when they were just a small, you know, Australian company. They were now, now they had contacts. And over the years, they, you know, added more products like Confluence and other things to sell to those people. And they didn't, and they didn't keep their pricing the same either. They didn't necessarily just keep selling their site license at $5,000. You know, they, they were willing to change their pricing model because they added value into the product and they, they gave the customers, you know, warning about what was going to happen, but they made strategic decisions about how to evolve that business and then move forward with it. And so, you know, in my, in my mind, I was thinking, oh, they're only getting $5,000 out of this, but actually they were getting a lifetime customer, right? And, and having Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch at that time, when they were a small software company from Australia, that investment was, they, they, they should have been paid, they would have paid the bank for that investment, you know, like almost in reverse. But so I think it's like, you know, in, in my mind, when I was pricing software back then and thinking about those things, I tended to think like, oh, I have to pick the method, you know, that 
is going to be the answer for all time. Or yeah. oh, if I change prices, like people are going to be very, they're going to complain and, and da, 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 da. But I think that you, you, you kind of just have to keep moving forward. Like the market yeah. changes, your the competitors change. It's always a changing landscape and you have to decide based on your situation, what to do. Yeah. I was thinking about when I was thinking about this conversation today, kind of prepping for it, that one of the big things on that I think a lot of the conversation around PLG is aligning on right now is that insight, which is there is an evolution there. Like you do have to evolve the model. So to begin with the PLG motion is a lot about like decreasing customer acquisition cost, making sure you get a lot of users in early, making sure that they find value early before asking them to pay. And like that is a phase. And then there's, we're a business, like most of these companies are businesses. So this like conversion is a thing, right? And then, and then how does the product itself help convert users into paying customers? So like there is an evolution there that you kind of have to go through. And it also just depends on where the company is. Like at the very beginning, you're building product, finding product market fit. It really is just about getting as many people as possible to recognize value in whatever you're building. And then you figure out conversion and that model will evolve a bunch as we know, like that strategy, whether it's the monetization strategy evolves and then it's growth, right? And then how do you expand on that, which is a completely different phase as well. So so there is something here about like PLG isn't, isn't a static thing, but there are some principles there. And I think the big one is just get more people in and show them value faster. There's also, I would just add on to that, Nikita, about this phase where people realize that when you want to sell to the enterprise, that that's going to look very different. And that's where, you know, you have to have salespeople. And I'm sure Kristen has a lot of opinions, but I think some, there's this notion in PLG that there are no salespeople. And that is a very wrong, (laughs) that is a misconception. Yeah. And I think it's like, you know, good for good for all the branders out there like that have been saying they were selling without salespeople when they when they really weren't. But you know, I, I think that it is just like it's it's figuring out the smartest place and how to use people best. But but yeah, that was that was you know, that's a classic at Lassian. Like I'd be like, I am in sales at Lassian. They'd be like, people would be like, No, you're not. <laughs> Lassian doesn't have sales. It's like I got a secret for you. There are some, you know, it's not yeah. the same as, as everywhere else. And maybe that's a good segue to like what PLG for each of our teams looks yeah. like. I mean, I related to that though, I think there's the, if we talk about misconceptions, you mentioned that Stella, I think that is one. Like when I think about the product motion, I don't know if it's called product led, but it's hard for me to imagine like an enterprise SaaS, you have the bottoms up and the top down. Like in most places where I've seen that you kind of need both, maybe at different times, but like when you're selling software to large enterprise businesses, there is often this top-down motion, which is probably a lot of the work that you do or your teams do, Kristen, which is a little bit different from the bottoms up who are probably the folks that aren't going to pay, but might be the pipeline to the people that will pay. Yeah. I think, I think definitely the lack of sales is a misconception. I mean, I think the lack of like a lot of, I, I think like sales and marketing both get kind of a bum rap a lot of times in PLG. Like there's a lack of understanding of what those two engines can do. I think there's also, I mean, I could go on a bunch of misconceptions. I think like that free trial is enough for it to be PLG. I would say that's, that's one too. But yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think those are big ones because it's just, it's, it's people don't understand how to box GTM in with, with something that's been called product led growth, you know? How how do you think, Stella, this is for you, how does marketing fit into? Well, 
I, it's interesting. It's, it's a really interesting thing because like I remember when Michael was interviewing me for this job and he was like put together a marketing plan and I was like, okay. And I put together this very traditional B2B SaaS marketing plan that was on a Trello board because I thought I was so clever. And it was like, I don't even know if you remember this, Michael. Do you remember? Mm, no, I didn't no. think so. It's okay. And it was like very funnel oriented. It was like you get people in on the top and then this is how we're getting them to become paid users and here's how marketing does this. And Michael was like, okay, this is great, but I want you to throw it away and do it over and just focus on growth. And I was like, oh, okay, that's that's different. So we don't care about monetization at all, just making sure so I don't like fail this interview. <laughs> but it was really interesting because I think, you know, and I've talked a lot about uh, marketing in, in quote-unquote product-led growth, but we were just like, all right, if, if, we, if all we care about in the beginning is this moat that we're trying to develop with this huge mass of users, like what do we as marketing do? And the content was a big thing, and the whole point of content was one, one thing around user education and showing people how to use Trello in different contexts because that was the thing that helped with virality. The other thing was like thought leadership and trying to get into, you know, trying to to grow Trello's like brand or whatever that meant at the time. And there was a lot of like PR stuff, like just trying to get out as much as possible. And in a lot of product marketing too. I mean, I can go on. This is like a whole other thing. But I, I guess the thing was that we never – thought about paid marketing or, you know, buying ads and the sort of traditional quote unquote things that uh, a lot of people think that marketing does. But it was really just about like, how can be how can we be in service of the user and growing the Trello user base, both within companies, but also just like within the world. So that's that was when we thought about the strategies, you know, there's a lot like with the mobile, we, we went really big on mobile early on. And that was obviously a big product decision, but there was also a marketing component to that. International was a big thing that we did both on a product standpoint and on a marketing standpoint. So there's just, I think, yeah. I think there's less of a potentially like a recipe and more of just like being strategic about how your function can, like what are the actions that you can do to, to really grow the the user base. We never used the phrase PLG at Trello. I don't think most of us even knew what that phrase But like none of us ever knew. But but like back to your point of the, the growth, it was always very obvious though that when we're talking about it, it was always like, how do we how do we make sure that this is a product that users love? Like that's something that I think we talked about a lot. Like people yes. love it and how do we build something that users love? I was going to say also to our point earlier about how things change as a business matures, like obviously marketing's role changed as like we brought on a sales team and we were thinking about monetization. Do you feel like you know what PLG means now, Michael? Sort of. I love this because you're going to be you're gonna be invited to a bunch more podcasts to talk yeah. about this. So you'll be prepared. It's like, it's even funny to like use the word growth. Like, what is that? Yeah. Like, of course but, you want to grow. Like, like yeah. what does that even mean? Like yeah. to determine this thing is, oh, we have to do growth. And it's like, I don't like it just, 
that just seems yeah. so like obvious. Like you need to get more people to see your thing, to buy your thing, to pay attention to your thing. Yeah, I have a few hot takes on on the whatever's going on in PLG right now, but I kind of go back to a lot of this comes down to what seemed like business fundamentals, right? Like create value for users, <laughs> like create yeah. value, make sure they recognize the value, and it's a business. So at some point, people need to pay for the value that they're finding. In the products. And I know that sounds and, overly simplified, yeah. but when I think about it, I'm like, these are business fundamentals in product, in any business, but definitely in software. But I think if you think about it, right, like a lot of, you know, just kind of remove the last seven years of, of tech, right? And, and if you think about it beforehand, I think there was a lot of like, it was an all or nothing purchase. You know what I mean? It was like all of our you know, we're, we're cutting over all of our email hosting to whoever, right? And it was like, it, you know, it was enterprise software purchases was, was it was all or nothing. And I think a big part of PLG is like the land and expand aspect to it. And the idea of like a lot of tiers of what you could have. I mean, when, when we sold fog bugs, there weren't really tiers, right? It was like there was the starter for, for startups and they could just kind of have it. And then maybe there was, there was basic fog bugs. And then eventually you could also sell kiln to it and a few other things. But, you know, the the good, better, best and like multiple product tiers, I think that's a big PLG thing. And it's like, hmm. because you don't have to, you don't have to prove all the value upfront in PLG. You don't have to prove all the value to the C-level for a 100K plus buy up front in PLG. And you usually don't go through these really long sales processes or big art because by the time you've gotten there, you're like, hey, did you know, like your company's already using this everywhere. Like, you know, what are we really proving out? And I do think that's the difference of like, <laughs> it is some of the fundamentals, but I think those, some of those fundamentals had to be done all <laughs> at the front of the sale. And in, in a, a PLG motion, I think those fundamentals can be kind of spread out over time. It's like delaying that, you know, getting all the little yeses along the way. And that buys you some time product-wise on what value you can prove out. To Kristen's point, there's probably also, I mean, there's other big shifts in like software adoption that make that make PLG something that happened in the last few years. Like the fact that who is the decision maker about you know, buying the software that usually it's this, the tops down and, hmm. you know, with Slack and Trello and all these other tools that are quote unquote PLG that you understand that if that the end users can also be the ones right. who are choosing the software. And I think that's a big, like we talked a lot about the democratization of software and that was like a big thing that was, I guess it's becoming more and more mainstream the cloud remember yeah. when you stopped having to install your own software yeah. then it meant that anyone could go and use it so it's like all of a sudden the fact that you could click on a website and use something meant more and more people yeah. could do that like imagine yeah. that you reduce the friction right like yeah that's a really great point that i think we take for granted which is that we assume that we're building for end users, but that's just not always been the case in enterprise SaaS, right? So yeah, that's right. Yeah. Someone at the top was going to choose, but now there's just so much more influence for actual end, from actual end users in these purchases. I, you know, Michael, you we were talking about Trello, and you talked about Fogbugs a little bit, but it, one of the things I was thinking is like, when I joined you guys at Fog Creek, you had been running for a long time without a sales team, and you guys were kind of 
I mean, dare I say, slightly <laughs> anti <laughs> I think that I just wanted to say that to the world that I lived through that. No, I, so I was going to say, you know, because it's interesting because you basically then had to figure out how to sell bo- fog bugs without a sales team, right? And so that that is PLG uh, in a lot of ways. So I'm just kind of curious, like it has been a part of how you've built all of your businesses. And so how do you think about that? Like, how do you get in front of customers without sales? Because it's been a, and marketing, it's been a critical part of how you built really well, three businesses now. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, you're right. So we didn't need sales or marketing because at that time we didn't need marketing because the internet was very young. And so, I mean, this is ages ago. I don't know why we're talking about the ancient history, but it's people <laughs> like history is really dating us. Okay. So the internet's very young. Nobody blogged. And my co-founder, Joel, was a really good writer. So he blogged about things that were interesting to people that were on the internet and they started reading it and they paid more and more attention to it. And so because he was one of the first people out there and he was a good writer and entertaining and because the topics that he was writing about were fun, uh, people started paying attention. And so that content marketing became really valuable before it was even called content marketing. That's why we looked back to history. At time to teach us to learn from history, content marketing. Yeah. But but so you couldn't like do, repeat that. Like if you were today, you're like, oh, how do you get? You know, people ask this all the time. They think there's some magic answer. They're like, how do you get customers? Like, I build a cool product. How do I get customers? It's like, there's no. That's the that's that's the work, right? Like it's like yeah. that's the part. That's yeah. the business part. Like it, yeah. having the idea. Yeah, building it is some of it, but it's like, how do you get people to use it? It's like, yeah, that's the problem. So that was the marketing, right? Was you just use that all these people that happen to be reading this blog and reading these books and they started doing that. On the sales side, I think we just didn't, we didn't really understand that that era was still in the days when the salesperson would take you out golfing and convince the CEO to buy this, you know, big piece of software and install it. Like this is still behind the server days. And so we were sort of, we didn't, we couldn't do that because we didn't, we didn't play golf. We were programmers. We didn't have any money to hire salespeople or those sorts of things. So we just did it out of necessity. It was more like, it wasn't like we were like, oh, this is a better way. We just thought, yeah. you know, if deve- if we're building tools for software engineers, they don't want to talk to salespeople because we don't want to talk, you know, like, and so we just sort of, <laughs> we went that way. But that was a different era. Like I would yeah. say today, like you were talking about before, you said something like you need to build, we were building software that people love, right? And it was like, back in the day, you didn't have to yeah. do that actually yeah. to get big. Yeah. The only reason you to do that today is because now everyone can post it on a, on a website anywhere. Anyone can help themselves. So that's why it matters that people deliver software because the end users are going to make these decisions essentially and not this gatekeeper at the company. And so they're going to prioritize the things they want and love, not the things that necessarily an IT admin or the CEO or some other person is going to prioritize. So that's why, you know, we were able to do it then, but it's now, now the case where if I'm building software that people love, the challenge becomes great. I've got all these people in this company loving it. How do I get the whole company to use it? Right. And that's where you need sales to really help you because you still have to navigate that system you have to bring those people together you have to get approvals that you have to start thinking about the kinds of things that the company themselves value like the kinds of features and things not necessarily the things that users love but things about security and reliability and you know 
I don't the, the data retention. Uh, there's not a lot of features that necessarily wouldn't concern somebody just using the software. And I think that there's a big role to play for calling it sales. I think is even even antiquated in the sense that you're with the product led growth as we're defining it now. Your your customer already knows the value. Right. That's why the product is leading the way. Right. right. So the pro- they're already in it, using it. They see the value. It used to be the sales was that like had to, you know, show your presentation and convince you of the value before they could install it and do all that kind of stuff. Now your company already knows the value. So the sales role is is making you successful. It's navigating your purchasing decision. It's making sure you're finding all that value. It's a lot more of of it, it's a kind of like I, I feel like it's a different like role than it would have been 20 years ago. So I, I think that's why if I was starting a company from scratch today, I wouldn't do it the same way that I did it 20 years ago. I would, I would yeah. marketing is really important. Sales is really important. I, I think I'm. You heard it folks. Yeah. I know. Prior. <laughs> no, we're not even actually making a podcast. I just had to find a way to get it on, on record. On record. <laughs> I think, I think the other thing, and, and I don't know where this fits in the definition of, um, product-led growth, but I think, you know, we, we talk about this word virality mm-hmm. and I think certain markets and certain types of software lend themselves to right. certain strategies and yeah. certain ones don't, right? Like if we're building oil and gas software, there's not really like much of a viral loop you can put in that. But if you're building marketing software, so your software is going to be used to talk to other people in the world, it's like, Oh, guess what? You're going to send it. Somebody's going to pay you to use your software to send emails to their customers. If you can use that to tell those customers about your product, like it's like boom, 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 right? Like it's so, so I, but I think spending a lot of time on that and thinking about how your product and your users can help you in that journey of growth and, and sort of finding new customers versus having to spend money through traditional ways like Super Bowl ads or, you know, Google ads or Facebook ads can be helpful, but it is just a different strategy than, than, you know, it's just like alternative strategies. And that's not like one is better than the other. Yeah, I agree. All right. So the question, Michael, that we're asking everyone at the end is if you were to give yourself your 22 year old self, some advice what would it be uh well can i ask you guys a question first because i yes. was listening to a podcast yeah with tim ferris and matt mullenweg um mm-hmm. the other day and they were in antarctica um, watching the solar eclipse and having very like existential podcasts yeah. very great episode totally. very similar to what we're doing but i have a question right so, so <laughs> we're getting there so yes. don't do the math <laughs> uh-huh. don't do the math but just tell me like human life how many weeks is that <laughs> Is it human life? No. I'm remembering my time at Trello now. This yeah, like, question- how many weeks do we think we have? Yeah. I'm, I'm sure the answer is not as many as we think. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's uh, yeah. 10,000. Okay, good guess. Good guess. Okay. It's 4,000. Like, yeah. if you live 80 years, 50 weeks. Yeah, it's 4, not a lot. 4, not a lot. Right. And so now you're probably, what are you? 35 something, 30, I don't know. I, I, just, I, just, <laughs> I actually just turned 20, 35. Well, so 35. it's, it's like, you know, it's like the 2000 week, right? Like, it's just like, yeah. oh my God, like it's a little scary, right? It is scary. 
And then in addition, you, you, um, like you can't necessarily do the things when you're 80 that you could do when you're, I know. Right. So So you you guys wanted to record the podcast yesterday and I said I couldn't because I had to go to my (laughs) elementary school talent show. Right. Like, and I, and then you were asking me like, Oh, what did your daughters do at the talent show? I was like, no, no, I just, they wanted to go. And so I went with them and it was like, it reminded me that it's like they're in elementary school now. Next year is the last year. My oldest will be in elementary school. Oh my God. I was like, it won't, you know, I won't, it won't be, I won't be able to ride the bikes to school anymore. They're going to be in, you know, they won't want to hang out with you in high school and all that kind of stuff. So it's just like, there's certain zones in your life that you can do certain experiences and you kind of just have to take advantage of that. Anyway, that you said advice to my 20 year old self. Yeah. And within that reference and thinking about life, like, why are we here? What are we doing? I actually think like I've done a lot of amazing things and, and I wanted to thank all of you, not just for having me on the podcast, but for being part of that (laughs) and making that possible because you've been very important part of my life. You've all made a meaningful difference in the success of my businesses and the adventures that we've done. So thank you very much for, for doing that. And I think like, it's amazing all those that we can come on this podcast and tell these stories because it's, it's like we we we've done some really fun cool things and i i think about like what is it that you know what value does work bring like why do we go to work what are we doing and for me the answer now in my life is because it's enjoyable to work on problems with people that i like that i like to work with that are smart people that i get along with that make it interesting and you know, just evidenced by us being able to have this conversation and do this podcast. That's, that's how I feel about you. And we touched your life. Thank you. I will note that you did not answer the question. Yeah. I was like, where was the advice in there? That was him dodging a question. No, I think I love it. Let's just, yeah, we'll go with it. We'll we'll go with it. it. I'll take it. I, that is the perfect answer. Yeah. Awesome. Thank well, you. Thanks for joining us today. Next time we'll have an, another amazing guest on the podcast. So this woman who's going to join us is a real force of nature and she's just a good person overall. So you won't want to miss our conversation with her. I'm going to keep her identity a mystery, so to heighten the drama. If you have any questions on PLG or on other sad math facts about how long we have left (laughs) on this earth, um, please ping us on Twitter. We have our very own handle at crossfunctionalpod. See you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Bye.